Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative. NMI strives to dispel misconceptions about marijuana and raise awareness of the issues surrounding the drug so that citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices regarding marijuana use and regulations. Learn more about NMI at thenmi.org. Hello, High Truth listeners. It's always a delight to join you in conversation on drugs and addiction. I'm your host, Dr. Oni Lev. You know, drugs affect all parts of the body. Drugs affect the brain, and we learned that from High Truth experts Dr. Bertha Madras and Dr. Bob DuPont, who are world leaders in the addicted brain. And we know drugs affect mental health, and I refer you to listen to Dr. Christine Miller and and Sir Robin Murray, who are experts in cannabis-induced psychosis and schizophrenia. And we've had episodes that talked about drugs in the skin and on the stomach, they affect the teeth. Today, we're going to talk about the eye. The eye is our body organ associated with vision, and various diseases are very much reflected in the eye. High blood pressure can cause hypertensive retinopathy and loss of vision. Diabetes similarly can cause diabetic retinopathy and loss of vision. Cancer, AIDS, and various infections can be manifested in the eye. So how do drugs affect your eye? I entered glaucoma and marijuana into Dr. Google, and I found over 2 million results. Dr. Google may say cannabis cures everything, including glaucoma. And if we look at state laws that approve medical marijuana, you may find the same thing. Dr. Legislator may tell you glaucoma is an indication for cannabis use. So let me ask you, if you had a disease that could make you blind, would you trust Dr. Google, Dr. Legislator, or a doctor who's board certified in ophthalmology? And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Thank you so much for sharing the High Truths podcast with me. My name is Caleb Armanderes, and I have the privilege of working with Dr. Lev as an emergency department technician in San Diego. I will be starting medical school in July. My question is, what are the effects of THC and CBD cannabis products on the eye? 
Thank you, Caleb, for your question. And how exciting to get accepted to medical school. That has to cause a dopamine surge that's at least as high as uh, cannabis or other drugs. I'm very excited for you. And to answer your question with the high truth expert, we need an eye specialist, an ophthalmologist. And so I invited Dr. Jean Househair. Dr. Househair is a clinical professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Oklahoma. She specializes in cataract and refractive eye care, and she is on the Expert Physician Council of Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. You can find Dr. Jean Househair's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Hauser, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, uh, Jean, you are an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor. So, tell us, how did you select that specialty? Oh, yeah. Well, you're going to find this funny. I was torn between emergency medicine <laughs> and pediatrics, and I took a um, a course, one month course, up at Mayo Clinic uh, when I was a student. And I fell in love with it. I have little tiny size five and a half gloves. And I realized I was pretty good at it. So I just uh, went into ophthalmology and trained there and have been doing this for over 40 years now. Long time. Wow, that's great. And, uh, and if you're still doing it, that means you loved it and you made the right choice. <laughs> Caleb is a, is just got into medical school. He called into the show and he has yet to choose his uh, medical career has a lot of great uh, choices, and I, I feel like it's like a kind of like a marriage. You've picked the right thing, and it, if you pick well, it'll last you. Yeah. And you're an expert on glaucoma and the effects of cannabis. And before I ask you about those effects, can you explain to our high truth listeners what is glaucoma? Yeah, so there's entire fellowships uh, in glaucoma. So, you know, it, it's it's a, it's an interesting question. So it's a group of eye conditions um, that damage basically the optic nerve of the eye. The health of the optic nerve um, is very vital for us to keep good vision. Uh, and damage to that nerve uh, is caused by abnormally high pressure uh, within the eye, typically. Uh, glaucoma is really one of the leading causes of blindness of people over the age of 60. Um, and it can occur at any age, including at birth. Um, so it, it's more commonly seen though in older Americans. Uh, there's different types, many different types of glaucoma. Uh, most have no warning signs at all. Um, and uh, the most common type, uh, primary open angle glaucoma, uh, that's the most prevalent type uh, that we see. Uh, glaucoma in general hits maybe about 4 million um, people here in the U.S. per year. Globally, it's about 60 million. It's more common in African-Americans. Um, and certainly family history we know um, makes a big difference. We found that there's a genetic link um, in a lot of uh, patients that have glaucoma. Um, vision loss uh, from glaucoma cannot be recovered. Once it's gone, it's gone. So our goal with the treatment uh, that we have for it is to keep what you have. Uh, sometimes when we first uh, see a patient with glaucoma, uh, they've already had significant damage uh, because they didn't know they had it. They felt pretty good. So um, there's a lot of different treatment parameters, and treatment is based on the type of glaucoma, of course. Um, and so uh, primarily it's aimed at lowering that eye pressure 24 hours a day, seven days a week kind of thing. So, um, and it's a lifelong chronic con uh, series of conditions. 
So that's kind of in a nutshell uh, what, what most people would probably need to know about glaucoma. Yeah, and there's various treatments that include medications and even surgeries. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, these are FDA-approved, uh, have been around, many of them, for years and years. Um, some patients that we take care of, glaucoma patients, are on more than one treatment parameter. Um, sometimes the disease will progress, even though they are doing everything correctly, and they are on maximum treatment, and we have to move to surgical options, including things like lasers and uh, shunt devices, and then um, other uh, intraocular pressure lowering type of eye surgeries that we do. So uh, it's it's a it's a type of patient that, as an ophthalmologist, we see on a frequent basis, and uh, we really closely monitor uh, their conditions. You said a few times that glaucoma is, is a series of diseases, not just one thing. Is can you explain how that's a difference? Like, is diabetes or high blood pressure? It's one disease. How is glaucoma a series of diseases? Yeah, so it's it's um, there's types of glaucoma is what I mean. It's uh, there's different types. Okay. So as I mentioned, there's open angle. There's also anatomically or uh, angle closure glaucoma, which as emergency room physician you may see from time to time. Mm -hmm. Commonly presents almost with a migraine, splitting, nausea, vomiting, horrible eye pain, horrible headache. There's also low pressure or normal tension glaucoma. Uh, there's pigmentary glaucoma. There's juvenile glaucoma. There's pseudoexfoliation type of glaucoma. There's traumatic glaucoma, uveitic or inflammatory type of glaucoma. There's neovascular uh, or inflammatory. There's congenital people that are born with it. And there's many, many other forms as well. But that gives you kind of an, um, a broad spectrum of what, what the types are. And that's really important to hear because when people think of glaucoma, it's like, oh, one disease and, uh, you know, one, one treatment, like one magical cure for it. Um, but it's not. It's a, like, like you explained, it's a very, it's, there's a, a, a lot more to be defined besides just using the word uh, glaucoma. And I know that when we see it in the emergency department, we call you right away. We start, you know, with different medications, intravenous medications, you know, controlling um, vomiting and also immediately controlling the pressure of the eye because time is of the essence to, to save vision, like you said. Yeah, um, with any kind of glaucoma, the other thing I think that's important to bring up today is the idea that there's a lot of factors that contribute to glaucoma older age. We've already talked about that, but you can't really change your age, can you? Um, your, your descent, whether you're African-American or Asian or Hispanic, these, these groups uh, definitely do have a higher risk. Positive family history, you can't change your family history. And out of all these factors, where I'm going with this is the one factor that you do, that we do have control over is eye pressure. And um, so that is a factor also that contributes to the risk for glaucoma. Um, so that is the one thing that we really aim at towards our treatment parameters. Interesting. And you became interested in the issue of glaucoma and the misconception that uh, marijuana or cannabis can be used to treat it. How did, how did you get involved in that in that? Debate. So, as an opt I've been practicing over forty years now, and um, you don't look that old. <laughs> I have been. I went to medical school when I was seventeen, so I was very young. But um, you know, beginning in my career early on, I had people um, who were illicitly, commonly at that point, using marijuana, talking about how they would come in and ask about it. 
it was it something that they could use in lieu of medication? And it was an, always an interesting question. Uh, people would not use it in place of their um, eye medications for glaucoma, but they would use it um, and tell me about it, talk to me about it. Um, and I'm not the only ophthalmologist that has encountered this over, over the years. So people just ask you about it. But I became more involved here uh, in Oklahoma back in 2018 when uh, this is where I practice. And we had a medical marijuana bill that showed up. And part of uh, my work here uh, in Oklahoma, I was the president at the time of the Oklahoma State Medical Association. And so I became involved in the political arena of this, just from the medical aspects that were being anecdotally um, relayed as being important. And so the most common thing we were hearing was that it was a great treatment for glaucoma. And, and I knew it, it wasn't. And I, I really went back and looked carefully into our literature. And um, it, it, to this day, has not, not ever been anything that we recommend. The American Glaucoma Society, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, as well as the Canadian Ophthalmology Society, all three to this day, uh, do not recommend using marijuana at all uh, for treatment of glaucoma. So that has not changed. Um, that has stayed the same, and they look at it. They, they. This wasn't just one time, you know, 50 years ago. This, this has been something ongoing that these associations carefully look at. Yeah, and that's important. Um, and it's amazing that the, like, just like you said, the Glaucoma Association, Ophthalmology Societies, they've all have clear statements that not to use marijuana for glaucoma, and yet. It is a very, it's always stated in, in state law that, hey, you could use marijuana for glaucoma. How do you think that happened? Why weren't they listening to you? <laughs> so I think it happened because back in the 70s, uh, Hapley and Frank, there was a study uh, on THC, which is one of the components of marijuana, was studied and found a lower intraocular pressure. And I think that's where all of this came about in the 70s mm -hmm. uh, was based on that. And, and when you go back and review that, um, they, you know, a lot's changed since that time. And we know now in 2018, um, there was a really excellent study that came out of Indiana. Now, I will pause a moment and explain before I explain that, that marijuana, as we all know, it's, it's currently a schedule one classification. So, you know, that means it doesn't have any medical indication, but has high abuse potential. Um, and so part of our problem here in the U.S. Um, in studying marijuana for things such as glaucoma, or the spectrum of diseases called glaucoma, is the idea that we really struggle because we can only look at um, laboratory animal. Uh, we can look overseas uh, because they have less restrictions in other countries. When we look at um, ocular, um, uh, good ocular uh, studies. And so we're limited on what we can do here in, in the U.S. Um, the other issue with marijuana clinical trials is that they have a relatively short duration of action. The marijuana does, has a high cost with it has some ocular irritation and some topical eye drop administration routes uh, that have been tried, very irritating to the eye. And then there's some general health risks with it and some side effects that are significant. So we've struggled 
uh, in, in our efforts to look at uh, glaucoma in terms of the scientific uh, arena. Um, so as I mentioned, that first article was in like 71. So the, the literature review I did, there's been a lot of articles that have come out, but the one in 2018 was, I think, significant. And basically, it was uh, uh, mice, uh, laboratory mice, and they separated the two types, uh, main types of marijuana, one being CBD and the other being uh, THC. Um, and they um, had uh, controls uh, with uh, placebo on it. And um, clearly the THC uh, did lower uh, within eight hours by 30% in the lab mice. So that was significant. The CBD, however, which has been around for a long time as well, it unfortunately increased eye pressure significantly within about three to four hours in the same mice, and it increased it by 18 to 20%, which is a lot. Um, and, and it was a repeatable thing. And the other interesting thing that I, I can't begin to explain why, but male versus female mice differed. Male mice had an increase that was more profound with the, both the THC and the CBD. We don't know why, but it did. So that's interesting because that suggests to some perhaps that, well, we should be using THC to, um, you know, lower intracranial pressure. But the problem is, is it's so unregulated. Marijuana is that we can't get pure THC, uh, like a, a bottle of aspirin that you go and buy. It's going to be pure. And because it's regulated as such. But as we all know, marijuana is not. And so commonly, you might be thinking you're getting pure THC, but there's going to be a mix of... Well, we, we, we can get pure THC, right? Uh, you and I can both write prescriptions for Marinol, and that's pure THC. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. But I'm saying for people that um, grow their own or... Yeah, who go to a dispensary buy, and want to treat it online, home. Yeah. Buy it online or buy it at a dispensary. That's exactly right. Um, so, and that's a lot of my patient base. They're not going to, yeah. you know, come to us doctors to, to get get that. But you're right. They absolutely can. But but that is an issue um, for, right. for people. So so it's it, it's quite interesting. But there's a reason that the FDA does not approve of Marinol for a glaucoma. <laughs> um, yes. So, so you kind of answered Caleb's question, which is how does THC and CBD, two different and even opposite cannabinoids, affect the eye? And you, you're saying that um, in, in mice studies, THC lowers pressures and CBD increases pressures. Um, and... Um, and these are mice studies, so we—I don't know if we want to trust our eyes on what's been done just in mice and not in humans. Right. So other things that we know increase eye pressure are things like high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. um, if you wear a really tight collared shirt uh, in men or a tight tie, uh, certainly some systemic uh, medications people take, such as steroids. Prednisone, those can um, either in drops, pills, creams, or intravenously can increase eye pressure in some people. So it's interesting. Foods at times we have found can increase eye pressure. High levels of uh, coffee, especially in excess, can has been shown to increase pressure. Um, so it, it's it's an interesting thing. 
um, that we're talking about is eye pressure. Um, so we don't we know some about some of these things I've been mentioning, but some things uh, we don't know. And I wish many of us wish we could uh, study more about uh, this pressure issue and uh, marijuana. But to date, there really hasn't even overseas been a good uh, study that would support in any way, shape or form, because we look for that, but we haven't seen it. You know, you mentioned um, eye drops with with marijuana, and I, I've been to a dispensary only one time, and I didn't, uh, I was probably like too nervous to really pay attention to all the products. I don't know if I saw any eye drops. Have you run into um, THC or CBD eye drops that people are using? No, but I've read about it. Um, I I haven't been in a dispensary ever. Um, just too busy to do that. Um, but there's... Um, the patients that I I take care of, if they're and all of them get asked if they're using marijuana at all, they really um, good are, for you for for eye doctors for doing that. Yeah, that's that's yeah. amazing. That's good to hear. Yeah, we've got to do it. We have to know because it affects their pressure. But they'll they'll typically tell me that they um, most of them smoke um, or vape. Um, some ingest, but it's predominantly smoking that. At least, I, and I ask every patient. Um, so that's that's what we're really running into most of them doing. Um, I think people are looking. Uh, the public are always looking for an alternative glaucoma type remedy, and I think that's how this discussion is is brought forward. Um, so I think it's um, you know it's 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 a good conversation to have with 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 people because they they get the wrong information and. Every dispensary I know, I mean, my patients I take care of at the dispensary, they're told that it will help glaucoma. They're all told this. Yeah, it's amazing that they listen to the bud tender rather than the the glaucoma association. Yes. Uh, But what would it take? So if scientifically speaking, which you would never do because marijuana is a, you know, uh, a plant with 500 different chemicals, including carcinogens and contaminants. But if we were going to use such a product to use to treat glaucoma, how much do you need? How much do I need to smoke? Like one joint every hour, or <laughs> what? How do I need to use it to to treat my my high eye pressure? Yeah, we've looked at that. It's really quite in, it's frightening. So think of the cost, not just the frequency. So you asked me about frequency. You would have to smoke six to eight joints in a 24-hour time period, 24 hours, seven days a week. Um, And so think that through. That's costly, right? And then also it's THC, right? That's going to lower your eye pressure. And, and we all know about the issue of marijuana over time, a person becomes intolerant to it or becomes tolerant to it. So they have to increase the, the dose to get the same effect. Um, the same study that I mentioned to you out of Indiana in 2018 with the, regarding the, the mice and the CBD and the THC, they also found that the higher concentration of THC and the higher concentration of CBD had more profound effects. And so it's a different deal now versus back in 1971 with the Hepler and Frank glaucoma study that occurred. Our marijuana now, as you well know, is way more concentrated, higher, uh, higher in, in, in potency. And so 
um, that's another issue. Um, so you'd have to you'd have to be high enough, uh, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. That I don't know that you could drive. I don't know that you could work or focus. <laughs> so, so it would be one of those. You'd be blind and pretty high, and that that would be your life. Um, and and while you're sleeping and you're not using it. Um, then your pressure is going to go up and then, yeah. you know, it doesn't work like the drops that are meant to be, you know, no. every six hours. So, so it's pretty much impossible. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah. yeah. It, it's kind of mind boggling when you yeah. think about that much and, and the cost of what we currently use for glaucoma treatment in terms of eye medications or laser surgeries or, uh, other types of glaucoma surgeries that we do, um, those are covered by insurance and um, commonly, and the cost, even if you didn't have insurance, wouldn't be anything next to what you would be paying for uh, in terms of just the related costs of what we just talked about as far as how often. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned cost, you mentioned efficacy, and then we also talked about the risks, risks to your brain, to psychosis, to your heart, to your lung to secondhand smoke, to um, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, all the other things, drug interactions. Um, so it goes on and on. Um, so the bottom line is that the, um, the ophthalmology associations, the glaucoma associations are all unified and say, uh, please don't treat your glaucoma with yeah. glaucoma. And, and in my literature review, um, if you look at the oral or by mouth and the sublingual or under the tongue, marijuana consumption, that's associated with a variable systemic absorption, and it's got poorly tolerated side effects. Um, topical compounds, uh, marijuana compounds uh, in eye drops uh, that have been used in studies have really shown very poor penetration because the ocular endocannabinoid system is highly lipophilic. Uh, so there's poor uh, penetration. Um, and it has intolerable ocular irritation for the people. And they usually have to abort the studies because it, it, it really causes a lot of red eye. What do they do? What, what is that? Is that THC or is it CBD in a liquid form dropped into the yeah. eye? Yes, yes. They have oh. tried that, but they've had to abandon every one of those and, and have lesser numbers because people are miserable with how their eyes feel. It's... it's oh. Uh, it's hard to see, you know, when your eyes are really red and really irritated and they just end up not using the product. So, um, you know, just thinking about how when you're smoking marijuana, it makes your eyes red, let alone putting drops of it in your eyes and it must really burn. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And so yet, and yet we see many states who've legalized marijuana medicinally specifically call out glaucoma as a benefit. And it's amazing how um, that's what happens when lawmakers play doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a, a myth. Um, and as an ophthalmologist, can you um, tell our listeners how do drugs, other drugs, affect the eye? Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of fentanyl, methamphetamine. We know that drugs change your pupil, like if you're high on, on opiates, it's their pupils are small, and if you're withdrawing, they're big. We've seen infections from using drugs that, that you know go to all the body, including the eye. How else are you seeing, are you running into that in your practice? Yeah, so um, 
you know, we have to know anything a person uses. And the other reason as an ophthalmologist that, that we always ask about marijuana usage is the idea that if we do have to take a, a marijuana user to the operating room for just routine cataract surgery or just routine, you know, easy, straightforward type of eye surgeries like that, um, the marijuana really um, can affect uh, the anesthesia uh, protocols that we use in that there's um, a, usually we have to give them two to three times or commonly have to give them two to three times what we would normally dose that particular person for their height and their weight. Um, and so we find that that is uh, another important aspect uh, to that. Um, in terms of what other medications do, uh, we know that marijuana, for example, um, interacts or interplays, if you will, with a lot of systemic medications that are prescription strength medications that people use, and they're unaware of this. It's quite stunning how many people have no idea uh, that that happens. And uh, so that's why back in 2018, here in Oklahoma, when we first started to have uh, state question 788 on medical marijuana, this was an important topic that we tried to bring forth uh, because we feel like patients should maybe talk to their pharmacists, certainly try to talk with their physicians about their current list of systemic uh, medications that they have prescribed by a a physician um, and see if there could be potential interaction uh, with these uh, because it does. As far as the eyes go, um, you know, different medications, you, you mentioned, you know, pain medications, those are well known uh, for that. Um, there's- uh, Are there eye medications that interact with THC or CBD? Not that I know of. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm aware of. Good yeah. question. We, we just did a, a really cool study in, in San Diego. We uh, gathered 17 different pharmacies and uh, passed out 10,000 info cards on marijuana drug interactions just to ask, you know, consumers to, you know, um, just so you know that there's uh, drug interactions with your medications. And then we asked them to fill a survey, um, you know, not not the majority of them didn't, but the ones that did, um, the overwhelming majority said they want this information. We, we want to know, are they going to get mad about it? You know, um, you know, don't tell me what to do. Or do you want to know about your prescriptions and how they may interact with um, medications? Just like, you know, and you always get warning labels on your prescriptions. Don't use with alcohol. Don't take with grapefruit juice. Um, because they're serious drug interactions. Some of them can be fatal. Like I've seen people bleeding because they're taking it with their blood thinners. Um, so I think that that's an important consumer protection. Yeah, another thing that I'm involved in here in Oklahoma, which is, it's interesting because here I am an ophthalmologist, but a few years ago, uh, we started, uh, the uh, attorney general here started the Oklahoma Opioid Overdose Fatality Review Commission. And I sit on that. And we um, are, are a, a public group and we, uh, it's all sorts of people are on this uh, uh, I'm there on behalf of Oklahoma State Medical Association, but we certainly have the Osteopathic Association. Nurses are there. We have law enforcement. We have ju a judge there. We have a chief of police. We have uh, all kinds of different. Uh, we have a, a behavioral uh, addictions uh, psychiatrist there. Um, just lots of different, really good people, and what and the marijuana authority is even there. 
representatives from there. And we look at, uh, we behind closed doors because it's privileged information, we take apart each death that, that we, comes to us uh, and we look for patterns. We look for um, where have we failed? Where did the system fail this particular individual? Where could we have done better? And I started asking about two years ago, I started asking, you know, we're really not asking or testing these, the deceased for any marijuana. We check them for fentanyl. We certainly check them for cocaine. We certainly check them for many things, a whole list of things. But that hasn't been one of those things that we've looked at. And I would be interested to know if there are other states, for example, that do the same thing that I'm talking about, where we look at the deceased. And try so I, I think that you do test, you're just not reporting it. Okay. Um, um, so I, that, that was my, the whole way I got in, involved into addiction medicine is through medical examiner, uh, data. Cause people, um, at the peak of the opioid epidemic, doctors said, well, you know what, if patients just take their medicines, like they're prescribed, they wouldn't die. And I wanted to know, is that maybe that's, I don't know if that's true or not. So we, I looked at all the medical examiner toxicology report of people who died from medications and compared it to prescriptions that they were received before they died. And and that changed my life and of how I prescribe as a doctor. But I did notice exactly what you're saying, that all these drugs are on the list for the medical examiner, testosterone and gabapentin and, and Benadryl, but where was the marijuana? And they just kind of took it out because they thought, oh, well, nobody dies. Well, how do you know if you don't measure? And we've gone back and now asked that question. Um, and and we'll, we'll have... Um, We'll have we'll publish that that information, and it's it's really eye opening because there's definitely if you I I know in practice when I meet patients in the emergency department who overdosed um, on fentanyl I haven't or used fentanyl I haven't met a single one that didn't start their journey with marijuana. So I am really happy that you are serving um, this committee in the state of Oklahoma to be asking these questions because those are important questions and. And I, I believe that you have, that you're taking opioid lawsuit money to do this kind of prevention work. Um, and so I think Oklahoma will, you know, can really be an example for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's important for any state to try and look at this, you know, that ultimate demise and look carefully at each of them mm-hmm. for where, where did the system fail them? What, what started, what triggered this? And sometimes we just don't know because we really seek to find that pattern or, or, or patterns involved, but the person was, the deceased was very good at hiding what they were doing. You know, one clear thing you can ask this for this data, and it exists, it's just a matter of extracting it, um, is suicide data. And if you look at suicide at the age of 10, completed, unfortunately, completed suicides, age 10 to 19, you look at it in Colorado, they publish that data right on their website. It's marijuana is the number one associated drug, more than alcohol. And so from them, from Colorado, I copied that and did it in San Diego and found the same results, and I bet you will too. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, it uh, marijuana here has been interesting. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that in 2018, I was involved in some of this here uh, locally. And um, basically anybody over the age of 18 could get a card back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, one-time physician's exam, uh, 
there was no list of ailments um, to limit access um, for, for their conditions or medical conditions. Um, many patients were told they didn't need to bring their medical records. Probably most were. Um, there was a, a really a lack of guidelines. We had the fastest turnaround ever. We had 90 days after the vote to implement it. That was unheard of. Um, we had um, a real lack of guidelines and dispensaries started hosting these widespread uh, marijuana recommendation fairs, um, which is not really a good idea, but the physician would basically examine the patients on site, fill out, submit their paperwork and away they go. Um, there really weren't any guidelines initially because we didn't have time for regarding advertising or labeling of edibles, especially with children, you know, oh. uh, pot tarts, for example. Um, and then smokable marijuanas initially at least were not subject to the same rules as tobacco products, such as cigarettes, mm -hmm. uh, cigars and pipes. And so that raised a lot of secondhand smoke concerns here in our medical community. So it was just um, an, an, an interesting issue that, you know, that we dealt with. Um, from and you, you have to be fuming. I mean, here's Caleb, he's going into medical school. He's gonna spend the next, you know, eight years of his life studying and, and, and oversight of what he does. And, and you've been the, your previous president of the Oklahoma Medical Association. You know what's involved for you to just give a, you know, simple prescription of an antibiotic, right? Of what, what in order to do that, you have to do a history, physical exam, vital signs, medication list, allergy list. And yet this new plant is called a medicine and but doesn't have to go through any of the standard of care medical conformity of what a medicine is. Yeah. So, you know, what you're talking about is the idea of keeping the medical in medical marijuana. And, you know, we, we talked earlier in the podcast about, um, you know, pediatric seizure disorder, for example, and, and the treatment of that. Um, so that's a, a well-known you know, a uh, treatment parameter that those of us in the house of medicine would know that that can make a difference for those. Right. And, and you're talking about little babies who have Dravet syndrome and, and are helped by uh, Epidiolox, which is pure CBD. These babies are not smoking pot. No, they're not. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. But but the medical and medical marijuana has really morphed anymore into something different. So you know, I, I, I'm older, so I grew up in my high school days were in the 70s. So marijuana was prevalent back then, but parents at that point were quite involved, it seemed to me at least, with their teenagers regarding marijuana, and they were quite good at that, and we didn't see a huge problem with it the way it, it, it was also low level it was very yes the, yes the high potency products that exist today didn't exist in the 70s that's right. right that's right and so i'm just commenting on that's how many years it's you know i mean yeah i think that's why like at the beginning of my career um i didn't see any marijuana poisonings in the emergency department now i see it every single day and and, and I, I don't blame the parents i blame the high potency the, the product is very different product. I, in, in some cases, some of the meth that we're, some of the marijuana that we're seeing, I had a patient yesterday. <laughs> he um, 
It's not funny. It's sad. But uh, he was uh, running naked, torn underwear, ran into a firehouse, ran into over the fence into somebody's yard, then chased by police. He came in just totally beat up. And it was just marijuana. And that's because the marijuana, some of the marijuana products out there is, are more like meth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also still run into patients who are using marijuana, but don't have a card. They don't have one and they're using it illegally and they know that, but they'll yeah. still tell me about it. Yeah. It's quite interesting. I I almost prefer that because at least, you know, you're not, you're not making a mockery of, of my profession. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so anything else we need to know? You're, I, I'm kind of fascinated. You, you were telling me at the beginning that um, you also talk uh, about our favorite subject, everybody's favorite subject, uh, COVID, <laughs> on a regular basis to the state. And here we are now at the end of Jan January 2022. And um, yesterday, I think I admitted 10 COVID patients. We're seeing, I'm seeing more than I did last year. Yeah. Yeah, so um, in uh, March of 2020, um, I'm just good at running meetings. I think that's how this happens. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was in uh, March of 2020, I was asked to lead what's called the Healthier Oklahoma Coalition. And it's basically the leadership from the main um, uh, healthcare teams, uh, organizations, or associations. So it's nursing, dentistry, family medicine, um, MD, DO. Um, at dentistry, we're, we're all there. We have epidemiology there. We have infectious disease. We have hospitalists, frontline people there. And it's it, we had to do something at the beginning because as we all remember well, when this first came out, we really were, what you thought was true in the morning would change <laughs> that evening. So, so we really learned to talk to one another. Uh, and we did this once a week for an hour. Uh, just exactly one hour. And we would talk with each other about what was going on in regions around the state. Because by doing this, we found it be quite helpful in our, in our process. And then we realized that, that particularly on social media, uh, the press were really wanting to have more information. Uh, truth, at the end of the day, what do we all want? We want truth, right? Mm -hmm. So we decided to put together, in addition, our team did, and I lead these press conferences, and we do these every Tuesday at noon, our Healthier Co Oklahoma Coalition. And, and the information is sent out uh, to the Associated Press. It's a sent out um, on the spot. Uh, I invite various speakers um, on various topics, uh, COVID-related topics, but we really work through questions that we find uh, that people are stuck on, that they don't understand or would like to understand better. And um, so these are really targeted to the public. Um, and I, I think that they've been quite helpful. Anything we don't know, we tell them we don't know because um, we don't know some things still. We, we wish we did. Um, but but uh, my hat's off to you uh, as a frontline physician uh, for taking care of these precious patients. Um, I'm just kind of up close and personal uh, to their faces uh, in my line of work. Um, but I am, you know, fully vaccinated and we carefully, you know, do everything we can to not get that virus. So uh, we mitigate carefully. I'm, I'm wondering if you're, if you're getting the question that, that I'm kind of considering right at this point, um, 
where we have the Omicron variant. It's very infectious at this point. You know, everybody has, knows somebody who got COVID. And un, unless you're unvaccinated or have severe immunocompromise, it's, it's not as deadly. And, and going back to how we treated influenza year after year after year, at the beginning of the season, we would test and then we'd say, okay, Everybody now has influenza. We're not going to test. We're going to save the reagent because it's a it's a special it's a precious resource, and we're going to test only people who are admitted. And I'm wondering if we're there now in this disease process where, when we just got all these testing kits in the mail, whoever wanted them. I'm wondering if that's not the right approach. If we need yeah. to like stop testing, stay home if you're sick, and if you're really sick, then we'll save the tests for those people. Yeah, I'm not a big advocate of home testing. It's number one, the patients have to do it right. Um, and some of them aren't going to do that right. And number two, it completely blocks ability to see their data to because it's not reportable. It's not anything we can track. Mm-hmm. So it gives... Um, Kind of wrong information um, about what's going on. Um, and, and those of us in public health service really like to know what's going on. Um, so what we're going to have to probably resort to is just doing the wastewater testing, which is what we've been doing around the university levels um, in pockets, in regions uh, around our state to, to just monitor what's going on. Because uh, also the other problem is people are coming to work sick aren't they? Um, and they're, they're not checking as you're saying, uh, or testing. Um, they're just saying it's, it's something else or whatever, mm-hmm. but, but they're not really, they're coming to work sick. And, um, it's a problem because even I'm an ophthalmologist, but even in my waiting room, I've got, you know, post trans uh, cardiac transplant patients. I've got immunocompromised cancer patients. I've got all kinds of very vulnerable uh, type of population there. Uh, and, that, and that person doesn't know that about, you know, who's sitting four feet from them or six feet from them. Um, it, it's just a hard situation. So, um, you know, this whole testing thing, it, it needs to be known what's going on, but people don't test unless they're sick. Right. So I'm, I'm on the one hand, kind of glad that they'll maybe go test it, but there are people that um, are testing too soon, like the minute they get symptoms, they're testing and you don't really want to do that. So, you know, they there needs to be some guidance or educational counseling to patients, to the public about when is a good time to test in yeah. in perspective to symptoms, for example, or your exposure. Yeah, I think we finally put signs out in front of the emergency departments. Please don't come here to be tested. We, right. We, right. That's the improper use of an emergency room. And yeah. that's exactly what they're doing. So yeah. what we asked um, our state Department of Health here to do, and you may want to do this as well where you live, is ask them to really make it loud and clear on their website um, what to do if they have symptoms and where they can get testing done. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we've done because, you know, they can go to an urgent care. They can go to, say, that kind of setting. And uh, a lot of communities um, are, are open for testing. So, you know, it. Yeah, I think we got that that message out. And yeah, there's plenty of places to get testing. Please to please keep the ER open for people who are really Yeah, sick. because our emergency rooms, I'm sure yours are the same way, are over are over okay. strong. And okay. you know, I'm in a state where we have far less vaccinated uh, compared to your state, um, and so um, we have uh, a lot a lot more trouble here. 
That's great. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, the work you're doing on uh, issue of drugs and marijuana and COVID um, uh, as, uh, as a physician leader. And what do you have final advice to Caleb, who will be, uh, works in the emergency department now as a technician, will be starting medical school? Yeah, yeah. so, you know, work hard. Um, ask yourself all the time why. If there's a way to study it, that's good. Uh, that uh, We need more clinical trials on this topic today of, of marijuana, we really do. Um, and so I, I look forward to somehow, someday, uh, being able to get more of that information uh, going so that we can get that published in PubMed. Because I, I don't like all the anecdotal stories that, that go on uh, with regards to, to marijuana, uh, because that's not how we practice medicine. We, we really have to look at the clinical trials. And that's where um, it has always been that the data and the evidence are always worth following. So thank you for uh, your time today and your great questions. That's great. And I wanna say thank you to Caleb for your service in the emergency department, especially during this challenging pandemic season. And I wanna bless you with success in medical school. And may you keep the enthusiasm and passion you have at this very moment of getting in the ecstatic feeling of acceptance to becoming a doctor. And may this feeling and passion sustain you for years down the road into your career as it has for me. And I wanna really thank you, uh, Dr. Jean House here, for bringing light to the issue of the eye and how drugs affect sight. And if I have an eye disease, I want to follow your advice over uh, the advice of uh, Dr. Google or the Dr. Legislator. Yes, yes. Thank you. And thank you for doing the podcast. It's important. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors, a sincere and warm thank you to NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative, striving to dispel misconceptions about marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. <laughs>